So last month, 60 women, around 60 women, some from this campus in Monterey Park, some from the other campus, we went on a retreat together. And I just have to say, it was incredible. And I always do all I can to convince all the women that I know to go to this. And it's not because I care about the numbers. Let me tell you, it is more difficult to organize when there's more of you there. It's because I know that God is going to show up, and I know he's going to do amazing things in our midst. And I would hate for any one of you to miss it. So Jennifer Sato out there, wave your hands. She uh, spoke. And she spoke out of her expertise. She is going to Biola right now, and she's taking um, spiritual life coaching um, as a major. I just made that up. What is it called? (laughs) (laughs) Spiritual directions. And she spoke to us about how to become the person that God created us to be. And she shared that we can actually miss out on becoming that person Uh, by hiding our true selves and living out of our false self. And I'll be speaking a little bit more about that later. Talene, is she home taking care of a sick sick child? Wes's wife, she spoke. She did an amazing job. And she spoke about how we as sisters in Christ need to choose to be a part of the body of Christ, to be in community together, to cleave with one another, even in the messiness of life. And I'll speak more on that as well. And then Saturday evening, Leslie Garman, who is the wife of our district superintendent, so she is basically me up in NorCal, right? So she came and she shared her powerful and painful story about growing up with a brother charged and imprisoned for the worst kinds of crimes someone can inflict on another. And how in the midst of all that, God poured out his blessing on her, on her whole family. It was so very powerful. We used boxes of Kleenex for our tears of pain, of sympathy, and even laughter. So here is, oh, there's the women's team, 2017. Um, as I'd like to mention, I do a little plug, that we're actually looking for leaders for next year. So if you'd like to fill out an application, you can go see Carol, and she will give you an application to, to join our team. But I'd like to show a little video. It just gives us a little glimpse of some of the things that we experienced at the retreat.
more that happened. Um, and, and I wish that I could have uh, showed you all the other things that, that happened as well, but um, that's just a little taste of it. But I just wanted to share that something really special happens at women's retreats. You know, I've never been to a men's retreat for obvious reasons. Um, and I don't know what it's like, but at women's retreats, women are invited to share in the messiness of life. We share our stories. We listen to each other. You know, people are more vulnerable, even those people who hate being vulnerable. You know, and, and they're invited into a sacred space of holding each other's pains, uh, the, the pain of each other's lives in their hands. No one ever regrets coming. And during our last session, we're inside this room, and there's this, a great big circle. All the women are sitting in a circle, and they share for one minute what their favorite moments are of the retreat. And honestly, the most closed off and introverted and private people have the most to share. It's truly, truly amazing. And I, and I can't help but wonder, but wonder, why is it that we rarely can manufacture these same conditions when we're not at a retreat. You know, why, why do these deep connections or our ability to be vulnerable, our ability to be safe places for each other, our ability to be real, why are these rarely experienced after the retreat? Right? The next Sunday we come to church, we uh, sweep our messy lives under the rug again, and we walk around looking pretty put together. So as I mentioned, Jennifer spoke on the topic of false self and true self, how to become the person that God created us to be. And I thought her session was so important that I took uh, information from, from her sermon and I preached it at NorCal's pastor spouse retreat this last weekend. So most of us, this is what the premise is. What does it mean to be living out of our false self? Most of us happen to live out of our false selves. It's the person we feel like we need to be in order to be liked, to be appreciated, to be approved of. And as Basil Pennington says, he says this, the false self is an identity based on what you have, what you do, and what others think about you. In stark contrast to this is the true self in Christ, which is who we are before God and in God, Christ living in us, as Paul put it to the churches in Galatia. The best way that I can understand it is just to use uh, the image of an iceberg. And some of you may have heard this analogy before, using an iceberg to describe our identity. So here we see that only 10% of the iceberg is above the surface of the water, and the 90% is underneath where no one can see it. And you can say that, that you only know 10% of me by what you see on the outside, right? My, my appearance, my public image, my filtered thoughts, what I do, what I have, what I say out loud. And underneath is everything else that we usually keep hidden, right? It could be our deepest dreams, our passions, our fears, our dark, darkest thoughts, our desires, our addictions, what we think, what we feel, how we see ourselves and how we see 
other people. Our hurts, our brokenness, our courage, our untapped potential, all these things that we choose to usually not show the vast majority of the world. It's all the facets of self. It's messy, complicated, beautiful, and broken. And as we grow up in this imperfect and broken world, we learn that there are parts of us that are shameful. Right? People betray us. They criticize us and tell us that we're not beautiful. And so we learn to fear embarrassment. Uh, we fear rejection. We, we fear shame. So we tuck away these flawed parts to protect ourselves, right? The parts that we feel insecure about. And as we go along, more and more of these parts are considered deficient. And so we uh, tuck away those things more and more until only 10% is shown on the surface. We hide our true selves from others and from God. Who would want to see our messiness? So I remember um, before Nathaniel, uh, I, I miscarried twins. And, um, and there was a lot of deep sorrow and anguish during this time. It's not usually something I show on my top 10%. And so I hid away. I stayed at home I, I, um, for about a month, right? I didn't take any visitors, any phone calls. Uh, I, didn't, I don't actually remember crying about it. I, I buried it, and I didn't even give it to God. You know, it was just a part of me that I didn't want to access or expose, show other people. Even my closest friends didn't take their phone calls. So do you do that? Like, when you're in a bad place, when you're in a place of messiness, do you hide from people? Or worse yet, do you hide from God? And I ask myself, well, what does God really think about our messiness? Like, what is, how does God feel about that? So that was a super long introduction um, to the sermon series that we're in right now. It's called uh, Incarnation. It's our Advent series. Before we get into it, I want to kind of explain the word incarnation first. So the word incarnation, it literally means to be embodied in flesh or taking on flesh. And Pastor Albert, a couple of weeks ago, introduced our theme verse for this series. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word here in the beginning with the capital W, that's referring to Jesus. And there are layers and layers of theology here that we're not really going to get into today. But all we're going to point out is this, that God, you know, the creator of the whole universe, the Lord of all, the Most High King, he chose to be part of this mess that we call life and to live among us. And in verse 14, we see the word flesh, and in the original Greek, it is sarx. And some would say that the word sarx is actually a crude term. It's a crass way of referring to the body. And we read here that God became flesh. God chose to be conceived in the womb of a human. You know, he chose to 
breathe in and feed off the amniotic fluid in the uterus of his earthly mother. He chose to be born in a family where his teen mother, Mary, was pregnant before getting married. People had suspicions that she was been sleeping with another man. And his father, Joseph, was seen as being foolish for agreeing to marry her anyways. Abner did a great job last week describing the messy circumstances of the birth of Jesus. And when we think of the manger scene, I think a lot of times we imagine a, a setting that is calm and quiet and peaceful. But you know, I've given birth to babies <laughs> without an epidural. And, and I have my suspicions that it's not quite typically like the Christmas card, uh, the manger scene, and it's all is beauty and loveliness. It's a pretty messy affair, I think. A dirty barn, you know, muck of a stable floor, smelly barn animals, an agonizing delivery. You know, there's pain and there's blood. You have, you have a young, inexperienced, impoverished couple. She's, they're far from home, no medical support. And beyond that, they're living in an oppressive society under a brutal king, a greedy <coughs> dictator. Political darkness reigned. So we ask ourselves, we ask, how does God feel about our messiness? And I feel like if we just look at the incarnation of Christ, we can come to the conclusion that God is actually drawn to it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the original Greek word to dwell is skenu, and it's much more than just a general notion of dwelling, right? It's this unbroken, deep, intimate communion beyond just being in our midst, right? God, he makes his home with us, right? He makes us his home. So why does, why does God do that? C.S. Lewis, he writes in his book called Miracles, he offers this great analogy for the incarnation. Think of a pearl diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing up in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into the black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. God is drawn to the messy, the broken, the imperfect, because we are there. And it's his will that we don't stay in that messy and broken and the imperfect. You know, at his birth, Christ was given two names. Emmanuel, meaning God with us, and Jesus, meaning God saves. And he's drawn into the messy to recover what is precious to him. 
In Isaiah 9-2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Sometimes we think that God is repelled at our messiness and our brokenness, but I believe that he's actually drawn to it. Right? Jesus, the incarnate Christ, he came to seek and save the lost, not just to be with the found. Right? He says in Mark 2.17, the Pharisees are looking down at him for eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's drawn to it. He's drawn to it because he knows you are there underneath all the messiness and brokenness. You are that precious pearl. In, John, in Genesis 2.24 it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Likewise, God is drawn to you, and he chooses to cleave to you, to hold fast, to cling to you, even if it kills him. Which it does, because Jesus, fully man, fully God, he chooses to die on the cross to save us. And through his resurrection, we are restored into the image of Christ. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean? First of all, cleave to God in our messiness. John 23, 8 says this, you are to hold fast, or in the the King James Version, it says to cleave to the Lord your God. And I think many of us in our messiness, I think we tend to hide from God, sort of like Adam and Eve, right? When they fall into temptation and they sin, they fall into sin. They hear the Lord coming into the garden, so what do they do? They hide. You know, it's like what we're talking about in the beginning, this whole idea of false self and true self. Now, Adam and Eve, they did not start off with the false self. You know, none of us did. And I can prove that. Because, our, because of Nate, you know, our four-year-old, I can assure you, he has no false self. <laughs> and he lays it all out there in the open, right? So our, our dear Nate, our four-year-old, he has not learned to wipe himself yet. So he will go number two and sit in the potty, and then he'll say, I'm done. Come wipe my butt butt. <laughs> He's done it at church. <laughs> Not here in the Roland Heights campus. He has had his pants and underwear around his ankles, and he's waddled out. And he says, okay, I'm done. Come wipe my butt butt. He hides nothing, right? All is exposed. And it comes out in other ways too, right? Sometimes he comes to me, he runs up to me, and he's got chocolate all over his mouth and his hands and his clothes. And he says, Mommy, Mommy, I'm sorry, I ate chocolate. And I ate five of them. I didn't ask, I'm sorry, but I like them. You know? 
So he sings on top of his lungs out of key without caring who's there to listen. And he has this funny way of dancing with no inhibition, totally at the beat of his own drum. So Nate, he exposes his unfinished, messy ways. And it gives me, his mother, the opportunity to help refine them. He gives me the opportunity to teach him how to wipe, to teach him about dental hygiene and, and why junk food is so unhealthy. And he even gives me the opportunity to sing with him off-key and top of our lungs and to just laugh out loud hysterically when he does his little dance. Nate relates to me out of his true self. You know, I do my best to nurture that little man to, the, to be the best that he can be for the pleasure of God. And I believe that we need to relate to God in the same way to invite God into our deepest, true selves, as messy and shameful as that can be, to allow him to instruct us, to heal us, to transform those places of unhealth, to allow him to laugh at us, with us, to take joy in us, and to allow him to mold our wills and our desires to his own. It's to let God make new those broken places, you know, that we have until we can finally respond to life out of a healed spirit. So God, he sees that 10% that everybody else sees, but he also sees the 90% where few people get to see. But I think more importantly, or most importantly, because he is a timeless God, he sees us when we are perfectly restored to the image of God. He sees us fully sanctified, fully glorified. In other words, he sees us when we are our, the finished product after he has done his work in our lives. Right, Philippians 1.6, it says, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. He sees us in our completed version. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Right? It's him. He is doing the work. He sees you as you will be. And I don't mean to embarrass Mei Fang, but he sees me as Mei Fang. And that's pretty incredible, you know, because I know, I know what's underneath the 90%. I know the temper, the ugliness, all that stuff. But God sees me, and he sees the beautiful reflection of Mei Fong's face. No, we should even put it up a little. The face of Jesus on me. When he looks at you, he does not see the messy you have to really understand. When he looks at you, he sees you not just fully sanctified, but fully glorified. The alternative is to live out of our false selves, right? And this is um, uh, what Bre David Brenner says in his book called Transformed by Love. This is a quote that... Um, 
Jennifer gave me for, for my talk in, in NorCal. But it's such a great quote. It says, During, Daring to accept myself and receive love for who I am in my nakedness and vulnerability is the indispensable precondition for genuine transformation. But make no mistake about just how difficult this is. Everything within me wants to show my best pretend self to both other people and God. This is my false self, the self of my own making. This self can never be transformed because it is never willing to receive love in vulnerability. When this pretend self receives love, it simply becomes stronger, and I am even more deeply in bondage to my false way of living. So we need to choose to live out of our true selves. Live out of the fact that God sees you fully glorified. You know what you are becoming. Don't let shame or fear keep you from God's throne of grace. So what, is, what does that mean, practically speaking? I believe, this is my version, what I think, but I believe it's just allowing God to examine my heart and bring to the surface what needs to be refined. You know, I go to God with chocolate on my face and allow him to wipe it off. So for example, you know, it's not easy standing up here. It really, it really, really isn't. There are so many Sunday mornings when I'm preaching, and I'm like, God, I'd rather be sitting right there. You know, I don't want to do anything. Like, my, my insecurities kind of rise up. And, and now Albert Hung has dragged me into the world of district superintendency. Suddenly, all these people want to hear me speak. <laughs> And this is definitely false self, guys, because they don't know the 90%. They're asking the 10% to speak, right? You know, I, I, I'm suddenly finding myself writing articles um, for um, these websites and a devotional book, and I'm speaking at uh, the Young Clergy Network in January, a couple of other like, places where it's all pastors. And, and I have to tell you, there's a lot of insecurity that rises. And you know what? <laughs> the ugly head of pride, you know, comes to the surface as well, right? And when I stand in front of people, like when I stood in front of our 130 uh, pastors and spouses up in NorCal, I have to check my heart, whether I'm feeling prideful or whether I'm feeling incredibly inadequate. So I'm talking to God constantly, Right? That prayer that I say after we do our group prayer, it's for real. It's like, God, you need to show up. It has to be you. And I'm constantly talking, God, why am I feeling so inadequate? You know, you can do all things. I can do all things through you. Right? Or why am I feeling prideful? How, how could I? You, God, you know my heart. So I'm constantly conversing with him, you know, and struggling with my usually insecurities. Right? There are times when I fight with Albert. Oh, you know, this morning, Albert and I got into an argument. Because, you know, I made him late again. You know, and, and you know, my false self could say, well, you didn't, 
you know, help me with this, or I'm working on my sermon, and you're the one that slept in, and, 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 and you know, like, I could, be just, I could allow the flesh to speak, right? But when I come with chocolate all over my face to the Lord, he shows me, Christine, you need to own this, and you need to own this, and you need to own this, right? It's this constant dialogue we have with the Lord, and, and constantly bringing it up to him, Right? Okay, God, I know. You know, it's just like he makes me so mad. And sometimes it's like, like, it's not even out of talking out of like, God, help me. You know, help me to be better. It's not even that. Sometimes it's like, God, forget it. I'm not going to say sorry. It's his fault that he did this and this. The point is, is that I'm allowing him to be in dialogue with, him, with me. Do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? This whole idea of living out of my true self with the Lord. And it's there in those places, and only in those places, that the Lord can cause me to grow. Only out of my true self. That's one. You know, cleave to God in our messiness. Number two, the second thing is to cleave to others in their messiness. And this is so important. We have to get this. The incarnation of Christ is a model for us. You know, because the word, Jesus Christ, he became flesh. And, you know, we are called to be flesh as well. Because we are the body of Christ. (laughs) He invites us to participate in the messiness of the world, in the ministry of reconciliation. Because he chooses to work through us, through the body of Christ, to redeem all things, reconcile all people to himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So he gives us that ministry, that ministry of reconciling all things to him. We get to participate in that So even when it gets messy, we cleave to one another. And I think this is demonstrated um, in Joseph and Mary's story, right? Because as as, uh, Abner was saying last week, Mary, I mean, she's she's engaged to this man, and she's, she's pregnant. How is that even possible? All the Roman and and the, the Jewish and Greek laws, they all demand that a man divorce his wife or break off an engagement if she's unfaithful. You know, people surrounding Joseph are like, what, you're not going to go through with this, are you? Like, it's so obvious that she cheated on you. And you're going to marry her? How shameful on you, how shameful on your family. But what does Joseph choose to do? Joseph chooses to cleave to his wife, right, or to his fiance. He chooses to cleave to him or to her and 
decides to go on with the wedding. God called him to a higher standard of love. Right? And as the body of Christ, he calls us to a higher standard of love as well. Now, I have a couple of friends that, um, that demonstrate this really well. I have permission to share this, but I'm just not going to name names anyways. But the husband um, admits to people that he's had this porn addiction that the wife did not know about uh, at the beginning. But then it comes out in the open, and after a lot of tears and, and a lot of uh, soul-searching, a lot of angry words, there are, there's forgiveness and reconciliation. And so the nature of the husband's job is that he's up, like in the wee hours of the night, working and working and working in front of his computer. And so his wife, right, his wife made a, a commitment Right, made a commitment that she would stay up with him every single night that he had to stay up, knowing that those were the hours that the temptation was greatest, when he's exhausted, when he's uh, just working, stressed out. You know? So he, she decides to do this, resolves to do this. So, so she stays up with him. Sometimes they only get a couple of hours of sleep. This is a very demanding job. And I've always thought it was quite valiant and self-sacrificing for her to do that, especially through her pregnancies. You know, on one morning I was talking to her and she's exhausted, yeah, like we only got a couple of hours sleep last night. And I said, well, do you feel like you really have to stay up with him? Like, couldn't you just put filters on his computer or put a camera on him or something, you know, just so that he doesn't fall into temptation? And she said, Christine, you're mistaken. You, you're not understanding my intentions here. You know, I'm not staying up to be a watchdog. You know, I'm not staying up to jump on him if he happens to slip. I stay up because I'm partnering with him. I'm encouraging him. I'm trying to give him strength that he's able to lean on me when he needs it, to be his cheerleader and let him know that she is with him, that she is cleaving to him no matter what. This is the higher standard of love that we are called to, not just with our spouses, but with others as well. So are we willing to do this with one another? You know, as the body of Christ, are we a safe place? You know, unfortunately, a lot of people have told me, you know what, Christine, church is not really a safe place. People ask me how I am, I say good, and I smile, and then we go on. Or if the church does find out something I did, you know, that I made a mistake or I fell into temptation or whatever. It's like, you know, I'm not talking about Trinity Church here. I'm talking about the universal church, right? It's just these messages of shame on you. But the message of the church, of the church should be shame off you. That we are declaring God's redeeming grace over people and see them the way that God sees them. Right, as recovered people that are reconciled into the image of Christ. 
And I want to share, there are pockets of those kind of places here at Trinity Church, and I really encourage you to find them. Well, we have a couple of couples groups going on right now, and um, in our group, we have about 14 couples. I could be wrong. I don't know, 12 couples, let's say. And, and what we have chosen to do, right, is to spend... Um, Every week, one person is scheduled to share about themselves for 45 minutes, nonstop. No questions, no pausing, no comments from other people. Let me tell you, if it's 20 minutes, you can hide a lot of things, right? You can just kind of go surfacey. But if it's 45 minutes, you go, you go deep and you tell all. And, and it's a really scary and frightening thought. Why? Because we live out of our false selves. We don't want to expose that true self to each other. It's a really scary place. And I, the last time uh, out of the group, I can honestly say it was the shyest one out of the whole group. Really shy. And she was, honestly, she was petrified of sharing. But she did such a beautiful job. And there was a lot of tears. And there was a lot of, like, people just committed, just coming around her and saying, we are going to stand with you in that. You know, we are going to hold your pain. And it's a very beautiful process. How about you? Are you willing to be one of those people others can trust for wisdom and gentleness? You know, that we can partake in this ministry of reconciliation. I'm just going to ask some questions. I just want you to reflect on them. And this whole idea that I, that I say where I'm in constant conversation with the Lord, talk to the Lord about these questions. Ask him to examine your heart and just reveal what he would like to reveal to you. Are you a safe place? When you see or hear about people sinning, does your heart break with tears and compassion, or do you just want to gossip? Do you move towards the sinner, or do you want to move away? Do you ignore the sin, or do you move into it and say, we need to talk. I love you, but there's something in your life that needs to be dealt with, and I'm not leaving until we do. Do you not associate with certain people because of their sinful behavior? Or are you willing to bear the shame of others' sin because of your contact with them? Do people know that if, you, if they had a problem that was causing their life to fall apart, that they could come to you and find solace? Do you really understand the new righteousness under the cross of Jesus? Just some question to ask yourself. The incarnation of Christ, what does that mean for us? You know, that it's the word becoming flesh, and we are to be the body of Christ, to do likewise. Right? To, to allow the Lord to use us in other people's messiness, to be real with each other. 
and as we prepare our hearts for the coming of the Messiah. You know, I just want Trinity Church for us to commit to this act of cleaving, you know, cleaving to him and cleaving to others. You know, there are times in our ministry, Albert and I, where people, you know, sometimes they'll say something or do something that is actually quite painful. Like, it just gets us so deep in our hearts. And honestly, the instinct is to say, well, um, you know, I'll I'll minister to everybody else, but not not him or not her. I'll, I'll smile and say hi and be cordial, speak to them out of our false self, right? But the Lord calls us to a higher standard. The Lord calls us to cleave to one another. And as the worship team comes up, Um, I'm trying to think about how we, the church, the people of God, our, our family here, how we can respond to that, how we can respond to the model that, that Christ shows us through his incarnation. We only have a couple more weeks left before Christmas, our Christmas service, and we've committed to um, 10 weeks of prayer, of a longer response in prayer with each, with each other, um, individually. And I know for a lot of you, praying together is the most frightening thing ever, right? I, again, it's the false self, right? This idea of trying to sound competent, or what do I even say? You know, but when we pray together, it really just is coming from the depth of your heart. And so what I'd like you to do is find two or three people. And I want you to pray. I want you to pray for our church. You know, we're going to be going through transition through it soon. And I think... The Lord is going to do something amazing in our midst. I really believe that. But in that process, I think there's a lot of insecurity and unknowing. And if we can just be that family, you know, where we can be real with one another about how we feel, it's going to make all the difference. So just go with a couple of people, you know, and just spend some time praying that we become a church, that we can be real with one another, that we can be a safe place for one another, and just pray for each other, um, that our hearts are prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Let's pray.